I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance. This is Eric Arneson, and today I am here with Vanessa Kindle, who is a writer and contributor to the Peacock Goat Review, and also a Sumerian witch. I mean, she's herself not Sumerian, but she does, you know, occult stuff involving Sumeria, ancient Sumeria. Uh, hi, Vanessa. Hello. How's Thanks life? for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Um, so let's start by talking about the uh, Peacock Goat Review. Um, what is it? <laughs> well, um, in short, it's an occult publication put out by um, Aaron David's Charm the Water website. And uh, it's a monthly magazine full of articles on various occult topics. And you guys, and it's a print magazine as well as a digital magazine, right? Correct. That's pretty exciting. And you've been writing them for, for Aaron for the Peacock Review since the beginning? Yeah, there's only four issues so far, so four months. Um, but I've been in every single one of them. What have you been focusing on when you write? Um, mostly connecting various uh, occult practices and stuff that I'm working through in my own practice with the Sumerian pantheon and seeing just how old this these practices actually are and and all that sort of stuff. So, and then so like with the so the Sumerian stuff like that's really really old. That's like way written old. in stone. Yeah, that's like <laughs> literally a, written in in clay tablets it's and a, stone. You know, cuneiform and Tigris and Euphrates like all the way back to the beginning of civilization sort of stuff. Yep. How old like what so what age do you think or what year do you think it, that the the Sumerian stuff started happening? When was that? Uh roughly 4000 BCE. Oh, so that's kind of like maybe even a little bit before Egypt. A lot. <laughs> well, um, it's about the same time as the Old Kingdom, but before anything in Egypt was getting written. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 4,000 BCE. I'm writing that down because it's hard to wrap your head around. That is really hard to wrap your head well, around. Well, if, if it helps... Um, <clears throat> the uh, the date that the Jewish calendar says that the world was created was after the time that Sumer was settled. Uh, <laughs> that's, okay, that's crazy. Um, so wait, but doesn't it? So like then we've got like that the that Christian bishop dude whose name I can't remember who said that the the world was created in four thousand and four BCE too. So yeah. That's still pretty old. Um, all right. And so, like, uh, what about uh, – So, but your religious practice or your spiritual practice is sort of focused around the Sumerian pantheon. And that stuff, um, you know, how do we how do we even know about it? Like, what's, what's that about? Well, um, in short, because there are tons and tons and tons of clay tablets written in cuneiform. So this is uh, so sort of like the this is like uh, Marduk and Tiamat and no, actually that is later. That is Ooh. from the Babylonian period. Uh huh. Um, it's the same. So the the way I like to explain it is the Babylonians are to the Sumerians what the Romans are to the Greeks. Oh, that's a pretty good explanation. So then, 
Is there a Tiamat equivalent in, in Sumerian mythology? Yes, but her name is Namu, and unlike this, the Marduk story where he slays her, instead, she doesn't get slain. So she wins. <laughs> well, um, there's no fight in that one. Instead, the, the, the story that became the Marduk story was actually originally the story of Ninurta fighting the giant Anzu bird that stole the Tablets of Destiny. And um, that story... You, that we actually have tablets for as like it changed. So we have that story, which is the old Sumerian story, um, which we have. We don't have the Sumerian version, but we have like a later Nippurian version, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but but we have you know a pretty old version of that, and then we have the version where they just swapped in Marduk and left everything else the same. And then we have the later version from the Enuma Elise, the, the tablet, the Seven Tablets of Creation, where they completely changed the story to put to make it so he's slaying the primordial goddess rather than some bird that shot out of the well of souls <laughs> <laughs> that all of that just sounded like an indiana jones movie right there <laughs> <laughs> okay hold on let's back up a little bit so uh who was it that slew all right so new namu Namu is the primordial serpent goddess. So that's who was eventually replaced by Tiamat. Uh, and so in the Sumerian version, Namu sort of teamed up with, what was the other character's name? The other god? Well, no. And in the Sumerian version, she's not in that story. She's oh. in a different, she's if in the creation account. Um, and she simply gives birth to the first few gods and then pretty much does nothing else for the rest of everything. Okay. Um, it was in the Babylonian version that they added her in and then made her into um, the one initiated in the conflict. In, in, in the uh, Sumerian, in the story of Ninurta, which Ninurta is the Sumerian analog for Mercury. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in the earlier versions of the astrology, he was he was put to the planet Saturn, but later they changed it to Mercury. And um, if you're familiar with, you know, uh, Greco-Roman stories, that's kind of the archetype we're talking about. The Mercury, the Hermes, the, the messenger and, and champion of the gods. Okay. So the uh, Anzu bird is this big, sometimes depicted with a lion head, sometimes just a giant eagle, desert eagle. Um uh, specifically golden eagle if you're familiar with the, what those look like it's it's based off of that okay um it's a giant one like you know crazy tall and ridiculous and basically a dragon bird <laughs> okay in terms, of, in terms of scale anyways and uh, it comes from the abzu which is a sumerian word ab means water and zu means knowledge and so it's essentially treated as the well of souls Mm -hmm. um, and it just comes, shoots out of that thing fully for formed and is immediately angry and steals the Tablets of Destiny, which are essentially the, uh, the, 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 it's the magical MacGuffin that gives right. whoever holds it the ability to decree the fates of everyone in the universe, including the gods. And... It was at that point held by Enlil, the the wind god, essentially Zeus, uh -huh. um, and it stole it from him, 
and took it up to this nest on the top of a mountain. And so the gods like try to get a, get somebody to fight it, and nobody wants to go fight it. And then, but Ninurta is like, "Well, I got to go make a name for myself, so I'm going to go up the mountain and fight it." And so he takes seven warriors with him, and they go up the mountain and fight the bird and steal the tablet back. And at first, he decides he's going to keep it. But Enki, who is the god of the Well of Souls, of the Absu, he uh, doesn't like that. And so he makes a, a turtle, a giant angry turtle beast to go and attack him and get him to give it back up and give it back. So that's that's that version of that story. And then, and then in the later early Babylonian period, they swapped out Ninurta with Marduk, but it's more or less the same story. And mm-hmm. then later they changed it more and made it into the Enuma Elise, the one that most people are familiar with. Uh, okay, that's... I mean, that's an interesting story, and it's funny because there are a couple of names in there that I'm familiar with, like uh, Enlil and Enki. I've heard of both of those guys before. Um, and Namu, I've definitely seen that name. Maybe just in reading your stuff, it could be... <laughs> Um, how do you, <clears throat> but you work with all of this stuff in your practice, right? So in your, yeah. in your sort of like magical or occult practice, you, <clears throat> excuse me, you, um, you work with the Sumerian deities. Yep. And not those knockoff Babylonian ones. Um, well, I kind of see them as more or less this, like different names for the same underlying archetypes. So um, sometimes I'll use the Babylonian names. Early on, uh, especially, I didn't know as many of the Sumerian names. So a lot of times, just simply because I didn't know any different, I just used the Babylonian names. So like when I had my big, crazy, transformative experience, um, when the primordial serpent dragon goddess introduced herself to me. She introduced herself as Tiamat, which was a name I was familiar with. So, uh, how did, so let, that sounds kind of interesting. You basically <laughs> t- tell us about that. How was that experience? Well, it's, oh gosh, that's a, that's a topic <laughs> on its own. Um, in, in short, it was brought about by a meditation exercise. I was uh-huh. meditating on the concept of nothingness, um, inspired by the Crowley's Book of Lies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden, I wasn't sitting on the bed meditating anymore. I was floating in a void and and a giant dragon thing that looked a little bit like a scalier version of... uh, Falcor from NeverEnding Story comes up to me, swims Mm -hmm. up to me, I should say, because even though there was no like, I I couldn't feel the water there. It 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 felt like I was swimming. That that feeling of weightlessness, but like also like almost like there's a weight there, but you couldn't actually feel any water. It's it's hard to describe. It was really weird. No, I think that makes (laughs) sense. It was almost like a uh, it was like a primordial something it was a substance that wasn't a substance yeah exactly <laughs> yeah okay you're right that is hard that's hard to describe but i i think i know what you're talking about <laughs> so um so the primordial serpent dragon goddess uh tiamat slash namu uh basically just introduced herself to you 
in this meditative state, and then it was kind of up to you to figure out what the heck was going on. No, it was worse than that. All of a Uh-oh. sudden, I was reincarnating like every two minutes or so into about like a dozen different lives oh. and living for a few moments. And um, then I popped back into the – I'm going to call it the Abzu because that's convenient shorthand for okay. the weirdness. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Well of Souls. Popped, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I popped back into the, the Abzu. It's a little bit more complicated than the Well of Souls, but whatever. Uh, I just use that because people know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, there's a bit of that. But a- anyways, um, so I popped back into it, and she told me to choose which life I was going to go back, back into. Oh, wow. And initially, I wasn't going to choose this one. I was going to choose a different one where I was younger, and some of my struggles in life didn't happen but then I remembered all the people that cared about me and were would be worried about me if I just poofed gone. And so I went back to this one, somewhat begrudgingly. Yeah. And then I woke up. And and when I first woke up, the events were chronologically all out of order in my mind, and I had to like sort through it logically as to how it actually happened. Because <laughs> they were all jumbled up, and I had to like figure out, okay, well, that couldn't have happened before that, because that had to happen in that order. And I had to like piece it together logically what, what actually had happened, because everything was all mixed up. So then when you came back, did you have... Um, did you have any clues as to what you were supposed to do next? Were there... So, I mean, you know, in, in most magical traditions, you have some sort of like body of stuff to work with, you know, so you might have, you know, like grimoires, you might have like golden dawn rituals or Philema rituals or something like that. Like what, what did you, how did you know what to do next? Um, well, when I came, like, well, when I came to, after I figured out what, like once I sorted through my mind and figured out what was going on and mm-hmm. and calmed down a little bit, um, I just kind of had this innate, innate sense of what I'm here to do, which is essentially to help out people like me, help them figure out stuff. <laughs> I'm being very vague, <laughs> right? But. Uh, so when that's you say somewhat intentional, <laughs> okay, that, that, that's cool. Um, uh, but did you, did you end up finding, like, how does, how does that practice manifest in your life then? Um, well, largely it's in researching stuff about Sumer and reading translations of tablets or even doing a bit of my own translation here and there where I can. I'm no scholar, but I can certainly look words up in a Sumerian to English dictionary. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and also, it's about helping people where I can. What is the Sumerian language like? Well, it's a language isolate, which means that there are no surviving languages on Earth today that stem from it. So, whereas, like, for example, Babylonian, that's a Semitic language, so Arabic and Hebrew are similar to it. But the Sumerian 
mostly because it was supplanted by the Babylonian language, it's more or less its own thing. So um, it's very – it actually reminds me somewhat of Chinese, of learning Chinese, because there's a lot of short syllables that are strung together conceptually to make larger words. Um by, just by their positioning and linking together in the sentence. So, um So, well, I, I guess what I'm what I'm kind of wondering is like do you is do we have like a body of Sumerian magical texts or religious texts that you're able to um sort of draw from to like enrich or flesh out your practice or how do you how do yeah, you Yeah, um yeah, actually I have a couple books that I rely on very heavily. Um, the first is the literature of ancient Sumer, mm-hmm. which was put out by the uh, Oxford um, Oxford University Press, and it's essentially a collection of translations of various Sumerian myths and other texts like hymns and and um, just recounts of things that happened and stuff Mm -hmm. Um, but they're all very heavy in the sumerian worldview Um, so i use that a lot and then there's another one um and this is a bit of a mouthful so i'm gonna read it off the cover Uh, mesopotamian incantations and related texts in the shoyan collection by a.r george and it is part of the cornell university studies in assyriology and sumerology volume 32 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i did say it was a mouthful yeah okay that's a, all right so then what are they like what's the stuff like how do you how do you how do you um, use it so this is essentially a very heavy scholarly text mm-hmm. that has scans of the tablets or or line drawings as applicable um or sometimes both of the tablets and then it'll have um, information about where it was found, what it's composed of, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know what was around it if it was that, and then it'll have the trans the transliteration where it's put into uh, certain this the sort of Latinized script that um, is pretty common with Sumerian texts, um, essentially written out phonetically with. Num- small numbers to denote when there's multiple things that are phonetically the same but have different signs. So, like, for example, in English, we have there, there, and there. Those are sound the same, but they're written differently. And you have a lot of that in Sumerian, so they'll have, like, little numbers to denote which one it is. So you have the transliteration there, and then you'll have the translation. Um, and a lot of times there's, like, holes in the text that you have to kind of guess what they're saying. But some of them are pretty straightforward. Um, and this has a lot of really interesting incantations, including the preparation of holy water and about a dozen different ways of curing various like common ailments um, with magic and um, it's all co- co- sorts of stuff like that. Um, and uh, that which what's really interesting about Mesopotamian holy water, as opposed to that of a lot of other traditions is it's actually composed herbally. So it's spring water mm-hmm. plus soap wort. And sometimes depending on different tablets, have it or don't have it tamarisk. And it's uh-huh. mixed together in a lapis lazuli jar. 
um, and then blessed with an incantation with uh, Enki and occasionally this other goddess whose name I can never remember because she's only like mentioned in that one thing. Um, but yeah, it's blessed that way, and essentially you ask the, those two deities to bless it, and then that's what it is. And what's interesting about those two particular herbs is soapwort, it's kind of in the name, it's an herbal soap. Ah. Um, it works as soap. And then tamarisk is actually a natural anti uh a uh, disinfectant. Sorry, I almost said something else. Um, it's a natural disinfectant. So when you put those both together in spring water, what you essentially have is herbal cleaning solution. <laughs> so, <laughs> so and they put that on everything. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Um, and so is there a, a pretty complete, uh, like, you know, if you compared that set of rituals to to something else like do you do you have enough to create sort of like a daily practice like do you have specific prayers for different days or or anything of that nature like how does how does this look in your daily life well the way that i've done it is sort of a kind of pick and mix with because there's definitely holes mm -hmm. especially like the daily practice stuff we have we'll have maybe the hymn but not when it was used we'll have you know a, a description of a, a of a of some sort of, you know, sabbat, but we won't have, we'll, and we'll have when it is, but we won't have, like, the details of the ritual. We'll just have, like, you know, a description from an observer's point of view or something. And so it's kind of like you just kind of got to put the pieces together and take some educated guesses. And in my case, a lot of it has been informed by more modern occult practices and kind of filling in the gaps with whatever seems compelling, especially with uh, stuff from Thelema and from the Golden Dawn and from um, the Celtic, like the historical Celtic religion, and um, even some stuff from the Greco-Roman texts. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's, it's been a largely a kind of a game of fill in the gaps. <laughs> How do you feel – how does it – how has it been coming together? Do you feel pretty happy with it? Yeah. Um, it's – I mean it's – it's. I wish there was more or at least more translated because, well, the British Museum has like a couple thousand tablets in storage that they haven't translated due to budgetary reasons and, well, just simply lack of people who can translate Sumerian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so – it could be that a lot of my questions about it may end up being answered in the future, so I'm always trying to leave that open. Um, but definitely a lack of access to material is a problem. Also just simply lack that sometimes tablets will get damaged and there'll be literal holes in the text. Like I'm, oh, yeah. You flip through this and sometimes you'll see tablets with like chunks missing or in a few cases like holes drilled through them for whatever reason. Um, and you just kind of got to go with what you have and make guesses and and sometimes there's you just you're not going to have the answer and you have to make something up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, largely what I've done is um as for the holidays, I'm probably going to change this in the so soon because – so it's not just me. There's also the Temple of Sumer, which is a, a, a group of Sumerian Reconstructionalists that I'm a, that I participate in. And, we're, and the Temple of Sumer is putting together this book. 
<coughs> excuse me. Um, it's it's going to be called Walking the Sumerian Path, and it was supposed to be out already, but we keep delaying it to add more stuff in. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that that somebody in the group has done is took the Sumerian calendar and the Sumerian holidays and mapped it out onto the our present day calendar, like basically extended it forward and put it onto our present day calendar for like the next. 200 years or something like that mm-hmm. and so i imagine once that comes out i'll probably start following that instead but what i've been doing myself is i've been using the wiccan holidays um and then but switching them to match whatever deity is relevant to that time of the year so for example during the spring it's damuz the god of springtime and the and the and uh and new life um and shepherdry, um, and during the height of summer, it's uh, Utu, the god of the sun. Um, I have a whole, I have a website, the Gnostic Temple of Anana, um, which has basically all of the stuff that I've created on it, plus some little other stuff that I've pulled in from other resources, um, and uh, it has all of the holidays written out on it. Um, though I don't, I also, in my personal life and in relationship to my magic practice, I don't use the same calendar that everyone else does. I use essentially a reconstructed Babylonian calendar where – because the Babylonian calendar, the months, are actually the astrological signs. Mm. So um, you know, when the sun is in Sagittarius, that's a month. When it moves – on then that's a new month and etc and of course they have names in babylonian so actually i took that and then mapped the the signs onto it um and essentially made a sort of hybrid gregorian plus babylonian calendar and that's what i'm using uh-huh. so um so for example right now we are in the month of gula and and that is the goddess of healing and dogs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it's kind of a weird combination. But if you think about it, like when people are sick and if they have a puppy, your puppy is going to try and, like, at least comfort you to make you feel better. So, no, I mean, it makes sense. It kind like, of makes sense on a level. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, before having actual medicine, like, the comfort provided by a dog is going to be enough to you know, trigger some placebo effect and cause healing in some way, I'm sure. Yeah. So anyways, we're currently in the month of Gula, um, and that's one of them. And essentially, as it goes around the year, and I have it start and end at Aries, Mm -hmm. um, because that's where the Babylonian one did. Um, So that's what I actually use. So, like, all the dates on my website are, are... on that ca- calendar instead. Um, and there's an explanation document on there that explains the whole thing. But uh, so I use that calendar, um, which informs it. So um, I found a translation of a, of a Babylonian tablet that has astrological, um, I think it's somebody's like workbook or something, honestly, because it looks like somebody had taken what they knew of astrology and worked out like the what days were good for what when um because it has a big huge list of lucky and unlucky days um for each month mm-hmm. 
And then it also has a big list of things per month that are it's good or bad to do. So, for example, like blessing a statue is good during certain months but not others and, and that sort of thing. And so I use that to sort of inform my practice. So if it, you know, if it, if it says it's a, a bad month to do, you know, prayers and incantations, well, then I'm not going to do them this month. I'm going to wait until it's a better month and stuff. So that informs it. And then also I kind of do the uh, – the days of the week thing from I'm not sure what that's from anyway actually, but the the whole um, a deity is for you know the the planetary days of the week. Yeah. But I've switched it somewhat, so instead of using the same seven that um, most people use, I've switched a couple out to make it the seven Sumerian deities who decree fate. Um, Oh, wow. And I use that to inform my practice. So, for example, if I'm going to do something with Anana, then I'm going to try to do it on a Friday. If I'm going to do something with Inky, I'm going to try and do it on a Saturday, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, actually, I don't know where that planetary thing came from, um, where the, the planets are aligned with the with the gods. I know that, uh, you know, Rome had it for sure. I'm sure that they probably stole it from from greece just like they stole everything else but i'm not sure uh where else it existed but i do know that like so so like the seven day week itself uh dates back to either uh babylon or is or or sumer which is really weird Um, it was babylon um yeah actually seven was a really important number in babylonian uh stuff mostly because of the seven visible stars of mm-hmm. uh, the pleiades um they used that that arrangement as a very common motif in their artwork um like they would make like seven dots to represent those um and uh so seven became a very important number and so um it was that the the way that their months were was um at the start of the sign was the first day of the month, and then the first – after seven days, they would have a feast day or I think, or, or some, some sort of holiday. And then like – so basically Saturday was, became the feast day, mm-hmm. and it was – they didn't have like actual names for the days. They would just call it one – first day, second day, third day, um, like just you know whatever number day it was right. of the month. I but, think that carried um, over into a lot of uh, Semitic languages, actually, that just naming the days one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, that was kind of where the seven-day week came from, was just the way that they yeah. organized their uh, their holidays and stuff. It's kind of crazy, though, isn't it, that the seven-day week started way back then in a in a culture that is so far removed from where we are now, and it's it's remained sort of constant and kind of even spread across the world. Like everybody has seven-day weeks. Like what what the hell is up with you'd that? Be, you'd be surprised just how much of the stuff that we use on a daily basis traces back to either Sumeria or Babylon or one of the cultures in that area. One of that group um in fact if you look at an analog clock you're looking at a sumerian arrangement of time really um yeah um in fact that's why there's 12 hours and 60 you know minutes and 60 seconds is because they used a base 60 numbering system that's crazy um 12 is a convenient yeah 
and and twelve is a convenient uh, division of sixty. So yeah, huh? That's why we have sixty seconds in a minute and sixty minutes in an hour and twelve hours in a day. And that's why our parents watch sixty minutes in every evening. <laughs> and twelve signs of the zodiac as well. Yeah. They actually started off with I think sixteen, and they they decided to go down to twelve because um, it was convenient in their numbering system. <laughs> <laughs> So astrology is uh, Sumerian as well, isn't it? Like the sort of the basic um, bits of astrology? Well, you start seeing some of the earliest bits of it taking shape in Sumer, but it, it was really the Babylonians who put that all together and really systemized it and, mm-hmm. and took it from you know a simple thing of looking the sky for omens into an actual systematized thing. And the Greeks actually learned it from the Babylonians, and we know that for a fact because we have the tablets where they were being taught, where it'll be Greek on one side and Babylonian on the other. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so so um, how does the... Uh, do, you, do you sort of like freely borrow from the Babylonian stuff when, when there's no Sumerian things to, to fill in the gaps? Yeah, essentially my my take is usually if there's a Sumerian thing, I use the Sumerian thing. If there's not, I go to the next earliest. So, you know, if there, if it's not, it's not a Sumerian thing, then I'll look at the Babylonians. If there's not, then I just keep moving forward in time until there is the thing. So I try to go with the oldest version of a thing. Um, though there's been some exceptions to that based on just stuff that I've experienced or stuff that seems to work for me like there's some things that i will stick with the celtic version just because it works for me probably because of my familial heritage Mm -hmm. do you find that um do you find that you get like a pretty satisfactory uh system out of the sumerian mix like is it is it coming together really well or are there are there still some uh glaring gaps that that remain to be filled Yes and yes. <laughs> there's enough to build a pretty good practice off of, but mm-hmm. there's still some definitely some there's definitely some bleh, words. <laughs> there's definitely some glaring gaps, but um none that make it impossible to work with the system. What are some examples of some of the glaring gaps? Like what 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 do you guys really miss? Um, well, there's there's a lot of deities that we just have very little information on. Like, well, they'll be mentioned in another myth, or or they'll be you know even referenced to their story. Like, oh, do you remember when that thing happened? But it's like, wait, we don't have that tablet. So mm. um, there's that's really the biggest one. Is just there's a lot of missing myths, um, and I would love to get my hands on those stories. Yeah, I mean that's something that you run into with almost every uh, ancient civilization or ancient set of, of myths and stories, but I imagine it must be worse the further back you go. How many, how many deities um, do you feel like there are? Like, was it, uh, was the Sumerian uh, pantheon or, or collection of gods? Was it, uh, was it huge? Was it like animistic almost, or was it kind of uh, restrained and kept to a small Oh, it, it was definitely animistic. In fact, like, <clears throat> Just how animistic it was becomes very obvious the more you read of Sumerian mythology. Like they had very much of animist worldview, and and there's a reason that Sumer has the nickname the Land of a Thousand Gods. <laughs> oh, really? I guess I didn't know that. <laughs> I might be getting that number wrong. I think it was something base sixty, but <laughs> but uh, in any case, it's you know the land of 
a bajillion gods. <laughs> uh-huh. Or 60 bajillion, probably. <laughs> um, so, so in that case, then when you're reading some of the, some of the, um, some of the myths, you must, it must be difficult to figure out like which gods to focus on. Or you, the, the, you know, you, I imagine that there must be more names you, you can even keep track of. Well, actually, no, there's like, there's kind of a core group of main deities that were the focus of most things. Mm-hmm. And you'll, you'll get sometimes, you know, a mention here or there of like, oh, this deity from this town or something. Um, but there was also a lot of syncretism going on. Mm-hmm. Or syn- syncretism. I always have trouble pronouncing that word. <laughs> but there was a lot of syncretism going on where um, you'll have like, you know, for example, two deities of the sun. So one will become more prominent and one will become less prominent and eventually be like merged together with that. So, for example, you there's two solar deities and two lunar deities that are important. Um, and by the time the Babylonian pantheon like they've been reduced to almost non-importance and then you know the further in time you go the less important they get and um and sometimes they would just outright say no these deities are the same Mm -hmm. um in fact that was the case with inanna originally inanna and ishtar were separate deities and sometime I don't. I always get the the time periods a little mixed up. I'm not so great on that. But sometime, um, it, I think it was in Heduana, the 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 poet. Mm-hmm. She was, I think, the one that decided that Ishtar and Anana were the same deity. Um, and then, but Ishtar uh, slash Anana, she ended up sort of being syncretized into gods for a long, long time, right? Like, di- didn't she end up being associated with like? isis or something too um i i've heard isis but the ones that are more um the the egyptian pantheon is very much its own thing and i think i don't i don't really think it's necessarily um there there are a few deities that are demonstrably pulled in Mm -hmm. um for example bess shows up also in the Mesopotamian pantheon. Actually, that's an example of a deity we know nothing about because none of his stories survive in the Sumerian and and Babylonian texts. Um, Wow. But, uh, um, yeah, I've definitely seen people say that Isis or sometimes Hathor is Inanna, but I've never really seen anything that really makes that apparent or... Or suggests to me that that's necessarily what happened, but mm-hmm. definitely Astarte um, is very clearly Anana, like unquestionably. Um, oh, and we best. even know who passed it to who, passed it to who, um, and then from that into even Athena and uh, Aphrodite, kind of being s- her her different domains being split into two. Mm-hmm. And becoming both of those deities, and you can kind of even see it linguistically, you know, Astarte and then Aphrodite, and the names are pretty similar. But yeah. um, so what about uh, what about like the Epic of Gilgamesh? Where does that fit into? That's Babylonian, right? Well, there's actually more than one. Yes, there's a Babylonian version, and that's the version most people are familiar with. But there's also a Samar- an earlier version. Well, well, first of all, there's two Babylonian versions. There's the old Babylonian version and the new Babylonian version, and they have differences. But then, if you go back further, there's like multiple Sumerian versions. 
So there's like the later Sumerian version where it's Gilgamesh, and then an earlier Sumerian version with where it's Bilgamesh with a B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, does uh, are and, some of the elements still the same? Like he he finds the wild men in the woods and fights with a goddess. Yeah, there's and... definitely there's definitely a lot of the same elements, but there are definitely major differences, and the order has been completely changed. Hmm. So, for example, in the in the in the Sumerian version, there's like people rising from the dead and, and going back out to fight, and then getting killed a second time. <laughs> um, and you don't really see that in the Babylonian version. That's more or less been eliminated. But um, yeah, there's definitely differences, and there's there's parts missing of both. Right. Or of all of them, like they're 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 incom- None of them are complete. The most complete is um, one of the Babylonian versions, but um, but all of them have gaps. Do you see the same sort of um, you know, like in uh, at least in, in the version of the Epic of Gilgamesh I've I've read, like at the end, uh, Gilgamesh goes on the quest to find um, the the method to bring Enkidu back from the dead and make him immortal. And so he goes and sees the, the super immortal ancient old guy at the edge of the world. And there's like the legend of the flood and all that kind of stuff. Like does the flood legend uh, go back to Sumer? Yeah, actually um, Mm. it goes back to like the beginning of Sumer. Um, Although the name changes, he has a different name and like there's a, there's two different names in Sumerian as well, like from different places and times. Um, so the, the name, his name, I forget what they are. Um, actually, that particular story and its history is really well documented by Irving Finkel. He's the uh, curator of Mesopotamian antiquities at the British Museum. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book on it because he discovered the oldest version of the story. And so he wrote a book on it called The Flood Before Noah. And it's it's a fascinating read, and I highly recommend getting a copy if you have any interest in this subject. The flood before Noah. Uh, that sounds fascinating. I will look that up and make sure that there's a link. Yeah, and there's also a documentary put out on that as well around the same time where they actually remade the 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 version of the Ark from the Sumerian version and floated it down a river in uh, in uh, in India. um how many uh, like are there other sort of uh core myths or like creation stories or things that from from ancient sumer that have you know made it into the bible for instance or made it into um other i don't know cultural myths that that are pretty well known absolutely um well, uh, for example, that Ninurta story mm-hmm. is referenced in the uh, in the Torah. Um, he's where the, the they've kind of mangled up his name a little bit, and it becomes uh, Nimrod instead of Ninurta. Ah. But he's mentioned as being the the great hunter. Um, and in fact, the the Tower of Babel story, which the story itself has no basis, but the uh, the ziggurat that it's it, it's calling the Tower of Babel is said to be his ziggurat. So we actually know where that takes place because we know what city that that was in. And in fact, we know which king was said to have been the one to order to have it built too. Oh, it really? Was, uh, if I remember right, it was. I'm not going to try and go off of memory because I can't quite place it, but. 
Uh, but that's yeah, definitely. Though. We know the king. Um. All right, that's cool. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I guess that <clears throat> that idea of like the the Bible or some of the really old um, biblical texts sort of uh, borrowing legends from earlier civilizations is is pretty widely known, but. Yeah, another example is the Cain and Abel story is actually based on two Mesopotamian deities. I can't remember their names off the top of my head, but one was a god of farming and one was a god of of uh, well, one was a god of a of you know plant farming and one was a god of animal farming. Mm-hmm. And in that version of the story, they didn't kill each other. Instead, they went to Inki for advice, and he set them straight, and they were happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> he, so, uh, sounds so like there's that, um, and and the Ninurta myth later becomes the version, um, the Greek story with uh, Apollo fighting the uh, what was it called? The the seven headed thing. I forget it's what it's called in the Greeks. Because oh. um, in later in in the later Mesopotamian version, the Abzu bird does turn into a seven headed dragon thing, and then later. Um, I can't. I can't remember. It's. You're not but, talking about the Hydra. That maybe been, that would have been uh, uh, Heracles. Gaia, I think. Gaia. I thought it was Apollo, but I I could definitely be wrong. Yeah. No, it, it was it was definitely Apollo. It was it was similar to it. It, may, it reminded me of the Heracles myth mm. when I read it, but no, it was definitely Gaia uh, got mad at Apollo for some reason and att- had had him fight this seven-headed dragon thing, and I can't remember what it was called. It has some cool name. <laughs> <laughs> I will have to look that up. That sounds like a pretty interesting story. Um, Clearly a lot better read on Sumerian stuff than, than Greek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might be... Uh, that's that's pretty rare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a really interesting uh, thing to try to reconstruct. It sounds... Um, Difficult. I mean, just sort of, you know, so like I, I work with the the Greek magical papyri and even there, like you don't have, um, you rarely have enough information to really go on. You know, it'll, yeah, it'll kind there's of give you some, yeah, there's definitely a lot of, especially herbs that are just left untranslated because they have no idea what they're supposed to be. Right. Um. So sometimes I can make educated guesses informed by more recent practices especially like the greek magical papyri but some sometimes i just have to make up my own thing because it's it's just gone um Mm -hmm. but there's there's quite a few ingredients that are a a good example is in babylonian necromancy there's quite a few ingredients that i just can't get my hands on (laughs) oh yeah um or that just will never be translated. Or that I have no idea what they are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have that translation problem just going back a couple hundred years, where where somebody will be talking about like weird herbs, and we're like, who, who even knows? You know, the, like Agrippa. There are untranslatable herbs in Agrippa, and that's mm-hmm. that's just a few hundred years ago. Uh, I can't even imagine the the like. There must be scholars out there who specialize in tracking down the names of herbs through different languages and cultures back through the years the well in the plants. case of babylonian mm-hmm. and in the case of the babylonian and sumerian texts 
they were actually really good. Like there was a library at Nipper, and we have a lot of those tablets that weren't destroyed. So um, some of that included herbal texts. So you'll have descriptions of the herb. And so if you know enough about the herbs of the area uh-huh. and you know enough about what it's talking about, then a lot of times you can figure out what it is just from the description. So, and, and of course, there's still some that where either the description is vague or it refers to something else and we don't know what that something else is. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely incomplete, but that's actually one of the areas that's – we do know more than – more than you would think just simply because they were actually really good at writing stuff down and the nice thing about clay tablets versus paper is they last right <laughs> right yeah i mean until you until you crush them back to dirt they're just going to remain clay tablets yeah in fact there was a lot of there, there were a lot of tablets that were because they used to just bury the tablets when they were done with them and so there were a lot of tablets that were buried while the clay was still wet and be, and over the years it dried out and became like you know stone tablets that we later dug up and and so we we'll, we have like tablets that were that were just you know students learning cuneiform and <laughs> writing the same thing over and over again and stuff. We have a lot of that. In fact, that was where we learned a lot of our uh, of how to translate the language was from those because you know it'll have you know this means this written twelve times on the same tablet. <laughs> <laughs> do you have do you have any idea of like how many how many of these clay tablets we have around? Like, is it is it st- there are daggering well it's th- hun- uh, tens of thousands i would think between i mean there, there's like a couple thousand just in the british museum archives alone wow. and then there's of course private collections and other museums and stuff so there and there's a current dig like they just discovered a new city and are digging things now. So like that number is only going to continue to grow as we start digging into that site. And we already know that there's, there's new tablets being discovered there. Like they've already found some. So <laughs> yeah, that's kind of exciting for, for you and the, and your fellow reconstructionists, huh? Yes, definitely. Except that there's a ginormous I'm always keeping up with the news. Yeah, well, yeah, Yeah. and there's the biggest problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the British government isn't that interested, so getting things translated is mostly a volunteer effort. Um, Though Irving Finkel, actually, the the same guy who wrote that that book on the the, the flood tablet, um, he actually is – has organized a task force to work on that, which is he has a, a whole group of volunteers that he's taught to translate it, that he you know, will have them translate stuff. And then, of course, if they find stuff that they can't translate, they bring it to him. But, mm-hmm. but it is getting worked through. It's just getting worked through very, very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I can't even imagine. I mean, you know, we see the difficulty just in, like, going through um, – uh, the manuscript collections at the British Library, you know, like you hear stories from from some of the grimoire people who are working in that stuff. And it's always it's constantly they're constantly finding new stuff just because so many things are just sort of glanced at, filed wrong and shoved in a drawer or shoved in a catalog. I can't even imagine what it must be with like can can tablets like there's not they they must not even be categorized at all. 
Oh no, they're pretty. I mean, they're they're definitely categories. There, there's there's number system. There's a numbering mm-hmm. system. Um, and I'm somewhat familiar with it just from reading all these scholarly texts, and you know they'll they'll refer to you know the numbering system. So I mean they they are categorized, but that definitely does happen too. Because for example, the uh, Babylonian map of the world that's currently on display in the British Museum is called the Mapus Mundi. It was broken during transportation to the British Museum. And the other piece was filed wrong, and eventually they found it <laughs> after years of it being broken, and were able to like restore part of it. It's still there's still parts of it missing, but that um, piece being restored gave it had you know it had text on it, so we knew a little more of what <laughs> what the what the Babylonian yeah. map of the world was supposed to be, and what that that part of the map was supposed to say. Hmm. That's uh, that's pretty, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a staggering amount of research that needs to be done just to make, uh, just to make progress. So I, I hope that you frequently come across new things that are enable that enable you to sort of like enrich your work. Like, is that happening a lot, or is it? Oh, definitely. That's good. Um, in fact. In fact, like new, there's there's new books even being published all the time. There's one I have my eyes on that's supposed to be released soon that I'm really interested in. That's uh, gonna be all about incantations and stuff. So, oh really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that sounds cool. Um, They're trying to collect. Um, I think it was specifically exorcism rituals, like a big, huge collected volume of, of translations of those that I'm really interested in. Irving Finkel was definitely one of the people involved in that. He's, 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 he's a name that comes up a lot because he's, you know, has his fingertips on the biggest collection (laughs) and is, you know, an active scholar that's doing, doing work all the time. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) well, that's really cool. So, uh, so, uh, do you have a website on? Oh, you do have a website. What? And it was called something of Inanna. Gnostic Temple of Inanna dot org. Gnostic Temple of Inanna. And what about um, that reconstruction um, group that uh, you're talking about? That is the Temple of Sumer, which right now the website is kind of being rebuilt. So there's. A lot of dead links and stuff on it, um, but there's also a Facebook group, and that's a pretty active group and pretty friendly and well, well-read group. And, okay. I mean, there's there's people who are actual scholars in that group as well that will answer questions. So well, that's it's, pretty cool. Uh, in fact, just today they were posting photos from a, a museum exhibit that's going on somewhere in Europe that. Was pretty interesting. So, <laughs> and then um, in uh, in uh, the Peacock Goat Review, are you writing about the Sumerian stuff at all? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> that sounds cool. I, I talk about it a lot. In fact, the the article from this month's issue, I talk quite extensively about the Epic of Gilgamesh and the and the symbolism behind that and stuff. And all right, so people, if people are curious and they want to learn more about like how to get started with Sumerian stuff or even to incorporate some Sumerian stuff into their practice, uh, where should they start? Um, at the moment, the best thing I would recommend is the uh, 
literature uh let me actually look at it and read it so i get this right okay the literature of ancient sumer by jeremy black grand coming cunningham eleanor robinson and gabor zolami i may be mispronouncing those names but it's it's put out by the oxford university press that would be the number one book i would recommend okay um after that um I would say, honestly, wait for the Temple of Sumer book to come out because that's going to be – I mean that's a huge volume of, of – we keep adding stuff to it by the uh-huh. time it does come out. It's going to be – it's it's probably going to be a complete text on its – on its like a complete system on its own. Yeah, on that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> but, how, uh, how long – Definitely th- there. Do you think there's um, a timeline on that? Um, it's supposed to be released this year. We've like put a hard deadline on ourselves that we're going to release it before the end of the year so that <laughs> we don't get – like we've already stopped adding stuff to it now. Now it's just getting things edited and corrected and stuff. So um, – but yeah, definitely that when it comes out. And that's going to be called Walking the Sumerian Path. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the stuff is kind of locked away behind um, – like scholarly places and stuff but another great resources is the uh, electronics text corpus of sumerian literature which is again the oxford university and it's a website so they have tons and tons of translations of stories hymns all that sort of stuff okay and then as for like active practice stuff mm-hmm. my website i have quite a bit of things either stuff that i've reconstructed or stuff that i'm put together from by mixing sources um and and so if you go if you if you go to my website up at the top there's a link to a library page and then there's like tons of stuff on there that i've either put together or reorganized or or written outright or translated Mm -hmm. um i've done a little bit of my own translations um and uh, like for example, that Babylonian astrological thing, that um, the tablet itself is not exactly modernly workable, right. but I've taken that and put it in a modern context using you know modern astrological signs and that sort of thing, so that you know somebody who's a you know current practicing occultist can actually make use of it. And that was the calendar that you were talking about earlier. Um, well, there's a calendar, and then there's also just the document that that calendar is pulled from. Okay. So, like, every month at the beginning of the – well, at the beginning of every sign, like, every time the sign moves to a new – excuse me, the sun moves to a new sign, I I usually try to, at the beginning of the month, as quickly as possible, put out an update to the calendar page, and that will have the current month on that calendar. So, not, not the month in the Gregorian calendar, but the ma- month in the – reconstructed babylonian calendar but it'll have the dates on the so like for each day we'll have whatever date it is on the the modern calendar okay that's pretty handy uh cool well i'll i'll try to include links for as much of that stuff as possible i i took a bunch of notes that it it's a it's impressive that you are able to put so much work into this and sort of like um take so much old you know, ancient Sumerian stuff and incorporate it into your modern practice. Um, I feel like, I feel like I should have done more homework before interviewing you, but I don't think I would have known where to start. 
<laughs> yeah, um, I would want to recommend this Mesopotamian Incantations book, but unfortunately, being a college textbook, it's very pricey. So, yeah, um, well, maybe... unless you're really, really interested and and are are willing to sink your teeth into some very scholarly descriptions of how things are translated and why and, and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Unless you're super interested, I wouldn't necessarily say paying for that. But if you are, then by all means, that's a great book, and I've got a lot out of it. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I'll, uh, I will include a link to that one, too. Wait, did you tell me the name of that? I think you did. Yeah, that's a big, huge mouthful one. I oh, can read right, it off right. again if you want. Oh, no, 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 no. I totally wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was really informative. I... Um, I mean, I knew I was coming into this pretty, uh, pretty blind, and you definitely uh, filled my head full of stuff that I've got to do more research on. So, thank you very much. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Thank you for listening to My Alchemical Bromance. You can find us on the web at myalchemicalbromance.com. You can find us on Stitcher and iTunes and YouTube, and uh, maybe Spotify. You can support us if you'd like to. In fact, we would love for you to support us through the Arnomancy Patreon. You can find a link in the show notes or on the website. It's patreon.com slash Arnomancy for just a buck a month. Uh, Tune in next time, and see you soon.